Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Well, hello, everyone out there, and welcome back to another episode of Brave New Teaching. I am Amanda, one of your hosts, and today's episode is brought to you by me. (laughs) That's right. Um, Today's episode will be a solo episode, just you all and me. Marie and I are working really hard to adjust to a semester full of challenges in terms of our time schedules and constraints. Um, Marie being on the West Coast and me being in the Midwest, our time schedules are often very difficult to coordinate, and we do not want to miss one single week of this podcast. So every now and again, you're going to get a solo episode from me and a solo episode from Marie, um, just to kind of keep us consistent, uh, even though we have to divide and conquer a little bit. Um, But with that said, I'm so excited to jump in today's episode. Today, we are talking all about some grading myths that we've told ourselves and believed and have really put a strain on our lives and our families, um, our health even. And grading can really be one of those pieces of the teaching puzzle that can really make or break you. It's it's one of the greatest contributors to burnout in my experience. And I think getting a handle on this truth versus reality when it comes to grading hopefully will help you set yourself up for a realistic future as you tackle grading uh, moving from here on out, especially into the end of the semester. Uh, I hope to give you guys two big myths, break them down, and offer you some other strategies, other ways of approaching and handling these situations so that hopefully you can get your life back a little bit. How does that sound? 
Let's cue the music. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. All right, guys, let's talk about grading myth number one. We're going to talk about two today, uh, but I want to spend some time on each of them. There are lots of them out there, but I think these two are like really the most um, disarming. You know, they're really, really hard for us to get over. And so myth number one is that grading and feedback are the same thing that we use this word grading to mean all of the things, scoring the work, providing our comments, providing our feedback, that whole entire process is one thing. I would posit to you that grading and feedback are completely and totally different things. Now that might not be revolutionary, right? This might be something that you're sitting there thinking like, yeah, I know that Amanda, but in practice, in how we treat it, Sometimes I think we forget that they are two different things. So if you're the kind of teacher that's feeling like completely and totally bogged down by grading, ask yourself, which is it? Am I bogged down by scoring essays? Am I bogged down by providing written feedback on DBQs? Um, Am I behind on checking in? participation work? What exactly is the part of the process that is bogging you down? And if you're saying, well, I kind of lump them all into one, then that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the myth that all of these things have to happen simultaneously or be treated in the same way. So let's kind of break down these two things in the way that I think about them now after, you know, some training and some workshops and a lot of, you know, PD and reading. Um, I've come to really separate this process into two parts. And I hope this helps you as well. So I think about the the grading process as two pieces. There's grading, or in my world, that's synonymous with scoring, right? Attributing a letter or a number or a percentage to something that a student has submitted. There's the number part, right? There's the numeric, what goes in the grade book part. And then there's also the feedback part. So Here's what I would would suggest to you. If you can think about those two things separately, you can actually tackle them separately too. And it's going to save you a lot of time. We know research says that students are you know, when they're receiving uh, feedback from you and they're receiving their assessments back in a timely manner, that that's more likely to turn around improvement, right? Students are going to know, oh, okay, I got a, you know, a 10 out of 20 on this quiz. I really didn't know those other 10 items or um, I scored, um, you know, proficient in this category and I scored basic in this category on the rubric. So I know which area I have to improve on. And so, What I try to do with my work, and you guys know I'm an English teacher, I work exclusively on rubrics. Rubrics have allowed me to create a system where I rely so heavily on the rubric itself that I can just circle 
the sections where kids are. So my Rubik's right now, I use a five, four, three, two, one scale. It's a modified standards-based grading kind of a rubric, but five, four, three, two, one is the scale and the categories on a given rubric are, are usually minimal. Let's, if we're talking about writing, um, there's a row for claim, there's a row for development, or sometimes we change development out for evidence and commentary that's more specific about those two pieces of developing, uh, developing writing. And then a final category for writer's craft. And that's it. And then the descriptors in each of those boxes are first and foremost in student friendly language. They are a bullet point list or a holistic kind of um, paragraph type of descriptor that makes sense to kids and very clearly dictates the difference between the five, the four, the three, the two, and the one. And now the real key, though, is not just that your rubric has student-friendly language, but the key is that you've taught your students the rubric and you use the same one over and over and over and over again. Because if we're scoring writing, and that's one of the biggest things that we're seeing, you know, that's taking so much time, what's happening when we switch the rubric with every assignment? The kids don't really know what to expect. You are adjusting to a whole new set of standards and and expectations. And that's where a lot of that time is lost or or time (laughs) is taken away from your family and your weekend and, you know, all the partying and fun things that teachers get to do. So if you can start with a rubric that you trust, a rubric that you and hopefully a team, a great team of teachers have worked on together and developed, if your rubric is is set up in a way that your students understand it, they've practiced it, and they can learn from it, then all you have to do is circle. All you have to do is score. Now, the feedback, that doesn't mean that we don't give feedback, but what that means is we can very quickly assign, well, we we can assign an essay and then very quickly provide feedback. Not even an essay. I use these also with quizzes. I have a Sesame Street quiz that I like to use, and my Sesame Street rubric is the same, right? That rubric, I use every single quiz. So whatever your assessment type may be, whether it's an essay or a quiz or a project, if you're using the same rubric over and over and over and over again, you can circle and return, circle and return, score and return, score and return. And that way kids are getting that fast feedback from you that they need to know where they stand, for their case managers to know, for uh, their parents to know. And you don't need to sit on a stack of whatever it is for a century before the kids actually find out how they did. Because I know why we sit on that stack. Why do we sit on that stack of papers? Why do we sit on that stack of quizzes? Well, because the feedback part takes forever. It takes a long time. And we get going, like you're excited for the first 10. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do any more. But if we separate these two tasks, we score something and hand it right back to kids. Then we tackle the feedback. So the feedback process can look a couple of different ways. And in my experience, um, I've really liked a shift to whole class feedback. And so whole class feedback means you're you're actually delivering one or two class periods worth of lessons based on what you saw as the struggle or pain points in the assessment that you just scored. Okay, so you've scored everything, you've handed it back. The rubric is giving the kids a a, a pretty clear start in the feedback direction. But now you're going to say, all right, everyone, 
Let's break this down. If we're looking at the claim row, right? A handful of you really nailed it, but most of you landed in this um, middle ground of like the three or the four range, okay? Here's what a four looked like. Here's what a three looked like. Here's what a a one looked like. We're in big trouble. We're going to talk more later. But this is where I want you to teach the kids how to transform that piece of the rubric into the next level. Show them examples, break down the skill, return back to the original lesson and actually show them what the next steps look like, how to get there and what some of the patterns were that you noticed. If you've been teaching for longer than, I don't know, a semester, you probably know that student writing really doesn't call for um, really individualized feedback in terms of skills, right? Individualized feedback is really nice for personal connection and social emotional connections. But when it comes to skills, kids make a lot of the same mistakes or kids misunderstand a lot of the same concepts. And so by, by teaching those patterns of struggle, those patterns of error, You're going to reach a big group of kids and you're going to help show them how to get to the next level. And that's such a productive and powerful way to structure your instruction. So instead of giving the kids a movie day so that you can sit and grade and get stuff done or two movie days or three movie days and try to give feedback, um, whatever that might be, or just to take it home and, you know, move on with your lives, schedule yourself actual whole class feedback lessons. Um, and if you don't want to do whole class, this is a great time, uh, great opportunity to do um, writing conferences or conferences period. And that's another really powerful way to give feedback to students. Um, conferencing can be logistically tricky um, with timelines and you know numbers of students you have to get through. So if you can't do you know individual writing conferences um, every time, that's okay. Try a whole class feedback lesson. Um, and whole class feedback lessons are great if you can record them too. If you're in a virtual setting, um, record those so kids can go back and rewatch and relook at the examples. Um, you could attach to your whole class. Uh, feedback lesson, other videos you've made about the process or the skills that were involved in the assessment, and really put kids back in the driver's seat quickly in terms of revision and making things um, better for the next go around. So really remember, guys, myth number one is all about grading versus feedback. Treat them as separate entities so that you can take a breath so that you can get something done, you can get those scores in the grade book, and then deal with the feedback, and then help kids work to improve. For too long, we've tried to mold those two things together, and I can't tell you, I mean, I'm grading everything on my computer now for the most part, but just, I remember when I was like in my early 20s, just taking bags of papers to Panera and sitting down and being like, yeah, I'm going to grade for three hours and like having this almost like merit badge I was wearing for spending an entire Saturday, quote, grading. And I lost steam so fast. I mean, you would get going and, you know, I'd leave these nice long paragraphs of feedback at the end of an essay and feel so good about myself. And man, by essay number nine, I was like counting the stack again to see how many were left. By essay number 11, I was counting the stack again to see how many were left. And I really lost that energy. I lost all that feedback, fun, like really personal connection I was having with kids through that process. I was losing it anyway. And 
although I still do leave notes on kids' work and I do that, I try to do that in other places too, not just in the grading process, because I recognize that the detriment of me taking four weeks to grade something is that the kids are going to learn nothing based on the feedback that I took four weeks to give. So give kids feedback all the time on as many things as you can, but don't feel like it has to be the end all be all for major assessments that are going to take you know a while to get through. Okay, let's move on to number two, grading myth number two. Grading myth number two is everything must be graded. <laughs> I don't know whoever made us think this, but I know for a lot of my career, I believed if I assigned it, I had to grade it. Everything, every single thing had to be graded. And I have lost hours of my life on those menial, trivial little things, because you know what's really the worst part about all that is that kids don't turn everything in. And if you're grading everything and not everything's coming in, it's coming in late. It's coming in. Oh my gosh. It's coming in. Uh, I, oh, I put it in the turn in binder or I put it in the turn in folder in the back of the room, but someone must have taken it because it's not there anymore. Or, you know, like that was back in the days of paper grading and stuff. So, you know, I think this is, this is a hard thing to wrap our heads around. When you ask a student to do something, when you assign something for kids to work on, we feel like that deserves a spot in the grade book every single time. And here's what I'm going to tell you. It doesn't. Not everything has to go in the grade book. Some things kids do for practice, and that's it. And if you feel compulsed to put it all in the grade book, create a system where you can do check-ins. Or you can just record that something happened, that something came in, that something went across your desk. You don't have to grade everything that comes in. Certainly check it in if that's something that's important to you. But when you have a kid working on, um, like today, my kids are going to be presenting a jigsaw. Um, So they're going to be in small groups presenting what they've learned about um, influential Black Americans uh, across history uh, as we start our study of Raisin in the Sun. I'm not grading every single person's worksheet that they're filling out. I'm just not. I can't. It's a bajillion boxes. They're going to be listening to people teaching. They're going to be teaching themselves. It's a bajillion, quadrillion boxes. They've been doing other things with this project too that have been kind of had check-ins and participation types of you know records that I've kept. But what I'm going to do and what I've learned to do is instead of grading every little trivial thing, is to create more assessments. So if this is practice, right, if we're giving kids lots of practice and, you know, uh, I want you to work with your partner on this activity, I want you to work with, um, you know, go on this YouTube scavenger hunt and complete this work, I can grade all the little things or I can create an assessment of what kids should have learned through those four, five, six activities and assess their knowledge or their, their craft or their ability by the end of doing all of them. And I leave it open note, right? That's the, that's the advantage. You know, you, you participated in the jigsaw, you did your YouTube scavenger hunt. Awesome. Have that out, um, have those tabs pulled up and take, you know, bring them into the quiz with you. Let's see, you know, at the end of the day, I've decided on this quiz, here are the things that are most important to me. And that quiz is what I'm going to grade. 
not all those other things. It's to your advantage to use them, to practice, to have them, to have done them. Um, but what I'm going to score is your best effort at this quiz. So it's just kind of a shift in your mentality. So instead of grading six activities, you're going to grade one quiz. And you're going to send the message to kids that not everything is for points. Not everything is for a grade. Sometimes in life we practice. When you go to your athletic practices, right, you have to run sprints at the end of practice. You have to do drills that are really painful. Are you getting high fives for everything? Well, no, but the game's coming up on Saturday. And at the game, you're going to show up and play and do well, or you're not, because it's going to be a result of what your practice looked like. So think about that too. It's really important for you to be the person that sets those boundaries. Um, And by the way, this doesn't need to be a beginning of the year institution. I mean, you can roll into this kind of behavior at any point during the year um, and students will adapt and students will get it. All that you need to make sure that you do is be extraordinarily clear with everything that you give, right? So kids know exactly what to expect. Another tip in terms of this everything must be graded mentality, if you do have a lot of grading to get through, there is an inevitable, it's coming down the line. I have really found comfort in treating my grading the same way that I treat my lesson planning. So if you were to look right now at my planner for the rest remainder of semester two, you will see that I have backwards planned from final exams. So final exam day um, is when that is, is um, whatever that last day, for us it's in May. And I've got built into that calendar the days that I'm going to spend grading that exam. And then I backwards plan from there. Okay, so what's the, the assessment right before the exam? Okay, this is the assessment before the exam. How long am I going to need to grade this? And then I schedule that grading time into my plans. So for example, um, I have a research paper that's coming in right before spring break. And I've used spring break not as my week for grading. I am not going to grade on spring break. That is not what spring break is for. It's a break. Spring break is for potentially uh, time for my IEP students to have their extended time. Um, Spring break is time for me to go through my list and see where the zeros are or the no-shows and send emails to those kids or to those parents. It's the time for my... um, for me just to kind of go through and get a feel for um, what's missing, what's there, and who needs extra help. What I've planned for the first day back for spring break is a three-day long lesson where kids are working independently. And what they're working on is something that won't be graded. It will be assessed on a very quick kind of either a multiple choice type of um, Google form quiz or a Quizlet or a Nearpod. It's going to be assessed automatically. And that gives me those three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to do the scoring and the feedback that I need to do for those research papers. And so that's that's really an important part of this process is to think about your boundaries and to remember that your contract time is when you should be grading. So for me, that what that looks like is my prep periods 
and any of my like moderately like before after school time that's still kind of within contract limits. So I think about how much time that is. So that's whatever, how many, let's say that's three hours a day. So I have three hours per day. How many days do I need to grade? And I plan that grading time into my school schedule. I don't set aside a weekend for a grading marathon anymore. I don't set aside spring break for grading anymore because grading is important. Giving feedback is important. But when it becomes something that replaces our regular lives, our families, our health, it's an excuse to not do something for ourselves when we so desperately need to be rejuvenated and refilled by non-school things. It's a slippery slope. I've done it. I've had grading marathons. I've had weekends where I've just been disorganized and not planned and and it's happened and I'm miserable and I'm cranky all the way through. And these poor kids, you know, they worked really hard on this research paper or this whatever, this project. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to grade another one of these. And of course I do my best to be impartial and whatever, but you've really got to pull yourself out of a spunk to be able to do that. So when we think about this myth, everything must be graded, you know, first of all, no, it doesn't all have to be graded, but the stuff that does has to be graded on your terms. You set the schedule, you set the tone for how that's going to get done. If you know it's going to take you five days to do it only during prep periods, you're going to close the curtain on your windows. You're going to lock your door. You're not having lunch with anybody. You're going to knock it out during school hours. And that's all there is to it. And your students are going to be working on the next thing, but you're going to structure it in a way that whatever they're producing is not extra grading, right? I'm not suggesting that you grade during your class period. You should still be teaching or providing whatever it is kids need to do during the class period, but you don't want to be collecting more work from them on top of the grading that you're already doing. That's what's really important about scheduling your grading time the same way you schedule your lesson planning time. Also, don't forget, you know, not everything has to be graded. Um, Peer review and feedback, uh, working with a partner and uh, getting feedback from other students is a really, really useful strategy. Um, Experiment with other practices. Like I told you earlier in the episode, we're in this kind of pseudo standards-based grading kind of hybrid experience. Um, And I love standards-based grading because I'm only grading um, the things that students are showing up you know, to, to provide mastery on, um, everything else they do understand is in this practice model. We practice, we practice, we practice, practice doesn't go in the grade book. Assessments go in the grade book and assessments are revisable. Like we work through them, we improve them. Um, but for the most part, it's really reduced my grading load because I'm getting this better picture of what my kids can and can't do because they're showing up for things differently than 45,000 homework assignments that they have to, they have to do. Um, you can also give kids, you know, some say in the, the grading process that, um, by, by providing choice boards, right. For providing, um, a checklist or saying, you know, we, we did 25 assignments in quarter one. I want you to tell me out of these are these similarly, um, point valued assignments, which, which six do you want to be scored? Um, I do that with my AP Lang students when we, uh, write essays. Um, we do an essay marathon week at the beginning of the um, semester when the kids are first just getting oriented to the different 
types of essays that are expected. And I, I asked them, okay, you wrote three, which one do you want feedback on? I'll give you one feedback. And it just is a way for your kids to also be part of this process and not just sitting on the other side waiting for you to finish your grading. <laughs> because we all love that, right? The email, are you done grading this yet? Anywho, I hope that was helpful for you all today, gave you some inspiration, some new ways to think about this process of grading versus feedback about this idea of that everything must be graded. There are so many more conversations to come, I think, from this initial episode. So let us know in the comments um, of our show notes, which is at www.bravenewteaching.com. Come on over, check out our show notes and leave us some feedback. Visit us on Instagram. Talk to us about grading. Talk to us about your experiences. What has worked? Um, you know, maybe tell us your sad, sad story about how you've lost track of the regular world because all you do is grade. Uh, I can tell you that I definitely um, physically felt that struggle in my early career days of teaching. Um, and I think people will empathize with you. And I certainly, (laughs) I certainly do. Um, but we can get through it together. It's one practice at a time. And you remember a lot of teaching and a lot of what we do is psychological. It's, it's letting you giving your, giving you permission. I want to give you permission to hit the pause button on what you've been doing forever. Step back, look at it, evaluate it, you know, which pieces are working, which pieces are, you know, making me eat more fast food in the drive through because I've got no time left for my life and for making dinner. What are the things that are taking away from your overall happiness as a human, even your happiness as a teacher? And how do we fix those things? And I, I guarantee most of you would say grading is a big contributor to that. So let's find a way to make it better. If you guys have any questions, I'd love to chat with you on Instagram. Just come on over. You guys can find us at Brave New Teaching on Instagram. And I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week at school. And we'll check in again soon. 